Good morning. How are you this morning? Um, the passage that we're going to uh, talk about today is in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. It's a familiar story. I'm sure you've heard it many times. Mark 5, 1 to 20. I'm going to read it for us this morning. They went out across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. And then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, and the demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, the first thing I want to say before I get started is uh, not only good morning, but I just want to thank you. I want to thank Calvary Church. Um, this is the only mention I will make of the organization I work for this morning. Uh, so be relieved. I work for an organization called Young Life, and uh, this church has been such a wonderful partner uh, to our ministry, and we are so grateful for this church. You're our partners, you're our friends. We are so grateful uh, and glad to be your partners and so thankful for your ministry here in Trumbull and throughout Connecticut. So you're a wonderful, special church. You're a wonderful, special body of believers, and it's uh, a privilege to be a part of your family this morning, so thank you. Secondly, I'm so deeply grateful for the ministry of uh, Peter and Casey Smith. Uh, they are just wonderful, dear friends. Uh, Casey has been the committee chairwoman for Young Life and what we term Greater Fairfield for several years now. And so I'm just grateful uh, to the Smiths. Uh, I'm thankful for their obedience in this community, for the ministry they have here and through this church. Um, every community uh, needs uh, several hundred Peter and Casey Smiths, and, and you're lucky to, to have the real things here in this wonderful community. So I'm just so thankful for, for Peter and for Casey and uh, thankful that Peter's on sabbatical. That's a good thing. That's a healthy thing. That's the right thing to do. That's good. Um, this morning, here's what I want to share with you. It, you've probably heard this passage a million times. It's 
Not anything that's new. You've heard this story. Maybe you heard it if you grew up in the church. You heard it in, um, you know, a Sunday school or you heard it in youth group or you, you've heard many people talk about it. I, there's not a whole lot uh, this morning that I'm going to add to it. There's no interesting or fresh take on it that I'm going to bring here this morning. My purpose here this morning as uh, your peer, as a friend, as a guest speaker, I mean, I'm a total stranger. You have no idea who I am and you're like, I don't, I don't know who this guy is. What is it? that wandered on stage here this morning. My only role here this morning is to just remind you. And everything I'm going to say this morning, I'm saying to myself. I'm not saying it down to you or at you. I'm talking with you. And I'm really reminding myself as I remind you. And so really the theme for what I want to talk to you about this morning is I want to remind you to remember. I want to remind myself this morning to remember. That's it. So if the only thing I do here today is make you sit there and go, oh, that's right, I forgot. Well, then I've done my job. I don't know about you, I can't speak for you, that every minute of every day I need to be reminded of who Jesus is in my life, what he's done for me, and what it means. And I'm a Christian leader, and I talk to people about Jesus all the time. But what I long for is to be reminded every second of every day of who he is, what he's done for me, and what that means for my life and my ministry. And that's what I want to do with you here this morning. I just want to remind you to remember. In Psalm 105, uh, it says this, Make known among the nations what he has done. Remember the wonders he has done. Cavalry Church, your reminder to remember this morning is that to be a good neighbor and to love your neighbor is to go among the nations and tell them what he's done and remember the wonders that he's done. That's what I want to remind you to remember. This morning, right here before I get into this passage and while I get into this passage, I want to talk about essentially uh, these things. I want to talk about the problem in the world. I want to talk about the solution that you and I, we know what the solution is, but instead, you and I do other things. And then I'm going to get into the passage. We're going to see what the problem is in the passage, what the solution is in the passage, the mission that Jesus asked this man to go on, what the obstacles were to that mission, and the hope that we have in this story. So first, let me start off with what's obvious. We're going to uh, use my first slide, please, if we could. Uh, the problem with the world, the problem with the world, the problem with the world, uh, I don't have to tell you what the problem is with the world. Uh, we are living in a world that is a mess. And you can either have your heart break over it or you can stand apart from it and say, well, you know, gee, I'm sorry. I think our hearts should break for the world. Our break's a mess. Our, our world is a mess for these reasons. Number one, we've just been through a global pandemic for the first time since, this is my understanding from the little research I've done, the first global pandemic since World War I. And we've never experienced anything like this, and it's crazy. And the effects of it are vast. Secondly, uh, we struggle with and have to deal with uh, political factionalism. What I mean by that is 
we have very defined beliefs and a very defined uh, set of sort of uh, political beliefs, and there's nothing wrong with that. But as a result in our country, maybe now more than ever before, we believe what we're going to believe, and we're going to shout it from the rooftops, and we are not going to listen to what anyone else has to say. We're not going to listen to our opponents, and we're going to just lump them all into one category of being our enemy, and we're not going to listen, and we're not going to have dialogue. We're just going to yell and scream and not listen. So we're, we're factional, maybe more than we've ever been. And I know we've been factional at times throughout the history of our nation, but it seems like we're more factional than we've ever been. There's racial discord um, last summer, but, all, but I mean, really, it's gone on throughout the whole history of our nation. Um, because of the pandemic that we find, find ourselves in, we're isolated, and maybe now more than ever, uh, we're dealing with mental health issues. Uh, there's an opioid epidemic, um, and I, I don't want to go in, into too much detail here. I, I have three children. Uh, I've been married for 30 years. I have three kids. Uh, my oldest daughter's 27 and married. My middle son is 24. My youngest daughter's 22. Uh, I don't want to go into tremendous detail, but my, my middle child struggled with uh, tremendous addiction issues and mental health issues. Uh, it's a very real thing, um, and it's out there. And our world's breaking apart. Uh, it's a mess. And the world's crying out for solutions. The world's crying out for, um, for the answer. And I think uh, that the problem a lot of the time is that we as Christians are not answering the questions anyone is asking. Uh, they're crying out and, and wanting to know where they can find their hope and wanting to find answers. Uh, and oftentimes we're not really doing that. And I, again, I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anybody else. Um, so slide number two, I want to talk about what the solution is. You and I know that the solution is Jesus. We know that. But we as Christians here in Connecticut and all over the world, um, for a variety of reasons, don't really share with the world the answers that we have for the faith that we have. Um, and so how does this manifest itself uh, in us, in our fellow Christians? Uh, well, the first thing we do, and the pandemic has made this worse, is because we don't want to get caught up and uh, stained by uh, being in fellowship and relationship with people that don't believe what we believe or adhere to our same system of beliefs, we tend to just isolate ourselves because it's safer and it's easier. Uh, we as Christians to isolate ourselves from the world, to sort of set ourselves apart. And we, all of us, myself included, are in danger of becoming like uh, the Pharisee in Luke 18, the prayer of the Pharisee as opposed to the tax collector, says the Pharisee, when he prayed at the temple, he prayed apart from everyone else. What that meant was because he viewed himself to be clean and that he had checked off all the religious boxes of behavior and because he had a very uh, direct and clarified system of beliefs, he didn't pray with the other people, he prayed apart from them. He didn't pray for people he thanked God that he himself was really awesome. That's really dangerous. And I think you and I are in danger of doing that all the time. We can want to play it so safe that we don't ever want to mix ourselves up with people who don't believe what we believe. I think there's a real danger in that. Secondly, our temptation is because in Connecticut we have time poverty and we've got so much going on in our lives, uh, we have so much to do, 
We have businesses to run, households to run, kids to get to travel baseball or travel soccer or um, things that we're involved in because we're good community members. We're so involved and our time is so taken uh, that oftentimes we just lead lives that look like everybody else's lives. There's nothing different about the lives that we lead as opposed to the lives of just our neighbors. And that's a little bit of a problem. Now, what I'm about to say is you're going to say, okay, Tim, so are you saying we can't ever have nice vacations or eat nice meals? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. You should eat nice meals when the time comes. You should have nice vacations, and you should take pictures of that food, and you should take pictures of those nice vacations. So hear me say this. You should go on nice vacations. You should eat delicious food. There's nothing wrong with that. That's all really wonderful stuff. What I see when I look at social media, when I look at Uh, fellow Christians, and what I'm in danger of doing is a lot of times we're celebrating, I think, the wrong things. We're not celebrating relationships. We're not celebrating loving our neighbors. We're not even celebrating loving God. But we are taking a lot of pictures of fancy meals and fancy drinks and nice vacations. And there's nothing wrong with that. So you you shouldn't sit here and be self-conscious. Okay, is Tim going to find my social media? And is he going to, I had that Mexican vacation. Is he judging my Mexican vacation? Not at all. Not at all. But I think the danger that I see, um, I just moved a couple years ago from Virginia where I work with a lot of kids in Young Life and then I go see them go off to college and they go to this big university, then they come back to Richmond and they do everything else but lay down their lives. They do everything else but be involved in their local church. They do everything else but sacrifice their time in obedience to God's call, moving out into the world and loving the world in the name of Jesus. They do spend a lot of time taking pictures of the drinks they're drinking. They do spend a lot of time taking pictures of their food. It's not wrong to take pictures of your nice meal. It just feels like we're focused on all the wrong stuff, myself included. Lastly, if we do anything at all in terms of sharing our hope with a lost world, we tend to reduce what we share with people down to advice, pietisms, Exhortations. I don't think that's what Jesus is calling us to do. We've reduced the message of Christianity to a Hallmark card. And it's so much bigger than that. Um, I want to share with you a a funny picture. Um, I ran into... Do we have that picture? Do we have that picture? Is it coming? There we go. There it is. Yes, there it is. Um, This past summer... Um, I spoke this past summer, or in this summer, in June, I had the privilege of speaking to high school students for a month at a Young Life camp in Michigan uh, called Timberwolf Lake. And beautiful camp, just beautiful Michigan, beautiful, lovely, scenic, tremendous grass, trees, wonderful. And I spoke to about um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,200 students over uh, four five-day weeks. Uh, kids from all over the East Coast, and it was such a gift to be able to go do that. We hadn't gotten to do that at all last summer. And we had an off day, and my wife and I went to town to get a nice meal. <clears throat> and the town was Lake City, Michigan. And after uh, we had this nice meal, my wife and I walked um, along the lake there in Lake City, Michigan. There's a lake, I forget the name of it. And we stumbled upon this bench. And, um, and there's, there it is right there. It's Todd Kerrigan, who lived far too short a life. And I'm not making fun of Todd Kerrigan. And I'm not making fun of his life. And I'm not making fun of his passions. Bear with me. I saw this bench. And it says, Todd Kerrigan, those are his dates. 
He was born in 64, died in 2014. And I guess this, this is the quote that he wanted to be known for. Or this is the departing thought that he has for the world. And it was this. Always try to leave the campsite a little tidier than you found it. I don't know Todd Kerrigan. I don't know anything about his life. I don't know what he believed. I don't know if he was a Christian. I don't know if he wasn't a Christian. I don't know what his worldview was. But I felt really sad for Todd Kerrigan in that moment. His life on a park bench, I guess he loved nature. I guess he loved to camp a lot. I don't like to camp. He loved to camp. That's great. Leave your campsite a little tidier than you found it. If you and I aren't careful, this world that's crying out and weeping and wailing and longing for answers, if you and I aren't careful, we will reduce the Christian message to something as silly as that. Just behave better. Just have my political beliefs. Just think the things that I do. Act the way I act. That is not the Christian message. We're going to see the Christian message in this passage. So moving into this passage, a passage that you're very familiar with, I want to talk about, and this is my next slide, the four ways that this man in this passage was unclean. Not only was he unclean by first century uh, standards. See, the, the Old Testament goes in great, uh, great detail about what it means to be religiously clean versus unclean. It was good to be clean. It was bad to be unclean. This man was super unclean. Jesus had just been with the disciples. Um, they were out on the Sea of Galilee. The wind and the waves kicked up. The boat was being swamped with water. The disciples freaked out. They said, Jesus, don't you care? Jesus, calm the wind and the waves. Then they continue on their journey. They land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, a place where the disciples had never been before, a place that is mostly Gentile in population. Gentiles are considered to be unclean by this first century audience. And what they encounter is a man who had to be positively frightening in how unclean he was. How is he unclean? Well, first, the passage itself tells them that he's being inhabited by an unclean spirit. So the spirit inside of him is unclean. We come to find out later on that this spirit calls itself legion. If legion is some sort of reference to Roman legion, a Roman legion could have 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers in it. So are we to infer that this man is so demon-possessed, he doesn't just have one or two demons, he has 4,000 to 6,000 demons. This guy is a mess. I don't know how many demons he had. He had a lot. And he ended up sending them into about 2,000 pigs. He's unclean because he has an unclean spirit. He's unclean because where does he live? He lives among the tombs. Did you know in, in this place and in this time, if you were a Jew and you were near a dead body, if you touched a dead body, you would be considered ceremonially unclean. The Samaritans, who did not like the Jews, what they would do when the Jews were building the temple to mess them up is they would take the carcass of a dead pig and throw it onto the construction site so that the workers who were working on building the temple 
had to stop and purify themselves for seven days before they resumed building the temple. If you were to encounter a dead body, touch a dead body, be near anything dead, you were considered to be unclean. So he's got an unclean spirit. He lives in a place where there are dead bodies. He's unclean because he lives among the dead. Thirdly, he lives in the Decapolis. He lives in one of roughly 10 towns that are Roman garrisons inhabited mostly by Gentiles. So inside him is something unclean. He lives in and around something that's unclean in a city that's unclean. And what is the city's main source of revenue? A pig farm. To be near pigs who are also considered to be ceremonially unclean, you would be considered unclean. So he's inhabited by unclean spirit that is potentially the demon possession of many demons. He lives among the dead. He lives uh, in a place with Gentiles and they're ceremonially unclean. And their main source of income in this town is they're a pig farm and that's unclean. He is super unclean. He's a mess. It says, it goes out of its way, the passage does, Mark goes out of his way to say they did everything they could to subdue him, and nothing worked. He was by himself, hurting himself, screaming and howling. Living among the tombs, not with anybody else, totally isolated. Totally as far gone as you could possibly be. What's the solution? Jesus. He says, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. And he pleads with Jesus. Don't send me out of the area. So Jesus sends him into a herd of pigs. The pigs run down a hillside into the water and drown. Jesus gave the demons permission to go into the pigs. After that, we find the man sitting in his right mind. And they come and they plead with Jesus, the townspeople do, when they find the man in his right mind, knowing that the pigs were all destroyed, they plead with Jesus to leave. So the demons plead with Jesus not to be sent out of the area. The townspeople plead with Jesus to leave. At the end of the story, the man pleads with Jesus to go with him. Jesus obeys the, the demons, doesn't obey, but grants them their wish. The town says, please leave. He grants them their wish. He leaves. And before he, when he's getting into the boat, the man who's now sitting in his right mind, who's been healed, he says, Jesus, I want to go with you. And Jesus says, no. Jesus essentially says, go love your neighbor. Go back into your community and tell them two things. It's right there. It's right there in, in verse 19. Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. The message is very simple. What has Jesus done for you and how has Jesus had mercy on you? As soon as this man is relieved of his demon possession and is in his right mind and fully functional and fully sane, by the way, you and I both know the only way to be fully sane and fully functional is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Only Jesus can calm the wind and the waves. Only Jesus can speak to demons and send them into another place. Only Jesus, being the very Son of God, has power and dominion over what that which is evil. 
And so in his newfound Christian life, this man immediately gets sent on mission. What's the mission? Go back to the town, tell them what I've done for you, and tell them how I've had mercy on you. Now, this is my fifth slide. What are the obstacles to this mission? What is it that Jesus is asking this man to do? Well, can we be really honest here? Jesus is giving this guy an impossible mission. It's impossible. Why is it impossible? Number one, he's totally alone. It's just him. Jesus and the disciples are leaving. He's left in a community alone. You, Calvary Church, look at all these people around you. You have each other. Isn't that incredible? What a gift. He's alone. Secondly, he's not attended any class on sharing his faith. He's not been to seminary. He's never read the Bible. He doesn't know anything. He knows nothing. He's alone. He doesn't know anything. Thirdly, and this is my favorite, this is what makes the story so weird. Jesus just destroyed the main source of income that this town had. 2,000 pigs, all dead. So I looked up online, you know, the internet's incredibly reliable. And I looked up what is, what is the main, what is the number one employer the number one company that employs the most people in Trumbull, Connecticut. And I could be totally wrong. Again, I just took a shot. It's the internet. I did my best. I don't actually know what the real, this might be the real answer. I hope it is. There is a company in your town called OCE Imagistics. Say that three times really fast. Imagistics, OCE Imagistics. It's headquartered in Trumbull, Connecticut. It employs 3,000 people. Please forgive me if this is inaccurate information. Now, the equivalent would be if Jesus came to Trumbull, set the OCE building on fire, burned it to the ground, and then told you, hey, go to Trumbull and tell them what I've done for you and how I've had mercy on you. And the audience that's hearing this is like, yeah, but are you telling us about the guy who just destroyed our town's number one source of income? Yeah. Would that be an easy mission? Would that be a fun mission? Does that feel like that's a doable mission? No, that feels like an impossible mission. Lastly, and I say this in the most endearing way possible, I love Connecticut. The people are angry and afraid. I don't think anything describes Connecticut better than those two things. And I love Connecticut. And I'm not talking about you, you're wonderful, nice, kind, warm people. I'm talking about the world out there. People seem to be a little angry. There's a lot of traffic. There's a lot of busyness. There's a lot of intensity out there. People in Connecticut don't like Christianity. They're angry at a lot of things. They're angry at life. And they're also really afraid. They're afraid of a lot of things. So the mission that you and I have been sent on to go tell our neighbors here in Connecticut what Jesus has done for us and how he's had mercy on us, well, that's a daunting mission. That's not a fun mission. That's not an easy mission. There's lots of obstacles. They're angry out there. They don't like what we have to say. They don't like who we want to talk about. We feel ill-equipped. We're tired. 
We're busy. We have more pictures of food that need to be taken. What should give you and me hope this morning? Apart from the fact that Jesus is the only thing that can help someone enter into their right mind. Here's my last slide. What gives us hope? Here's what gives us hope. The man couldn't have been any more gone. He was unclean four times over. Because of his encounter with Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, at the end of the story, he's in his right mind. There are a lot of people out there doing the same thing, the equivalent of howling among the tombs, hurting themselves. They can't be subdued. They're trying to find life. They're trying to find hope. Only Jesus can provide them with that. We were designed to live from the center, not in the center. In Jesus, our identity being in Him, only in a relationship with Him can we truly live from the center. If Jesus created all things, and in Him all things to hold together, then isn't He the only place to find life? That's what we have to share with a lost world. Secondly, our mission is a simple one. It's not complicated. It's not tricky. You don't have to have gone to seminary. You don't have to have taken a class. It's this. You, you, me, we go into the world and we tell them, when appropriate, what Jesus has done for us and how he's had mercy on us. Our call is to build bridges. And when appropriate, cross them. Don't cross them before it's time. But don't endlessly build a bridge and never cross it. I promise you at some point, someone will ask you why you are loving them so extravagantly. That's when you tell them what Jesus has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Lastly, there was short-term fruit here and long-term fruit. What's the short-term fruit? At the end of the story, it says, and all the people were amazed. This man who was howling among the tombs is in his right mind. And he's telling us who Jesus is. Secondly, there's long-term fruit. In Mark chapter 7, verse 31 and 32, it says this, Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee, and into the region of the Decapolis. He came back to the Decapolis, and what happened? There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. Who's doing the begging now? They're begging him to come back. Why? Because of the ministry of the man who is possessed by legion. Which is the last thing I want to make note of here this morning. If you're wondering whether you're equipped or not, whether God's calling you or not, whether or not you'll ever have the right words to say, whether you could ever have the patience to love somebody who's inherently unlovable. Remember that the first person to share the message of Jesus Christ with a Gentile or Gentiles was a person who couldn't have been any more inhabited by evil and couldn't have been any farther gone. 
Tim Keller says this about our resistance to sharing our faith with people. He says this, we might think that keeping quiet about such things is modesty, but its effect is the opposite. It allows others to believe that we have overcome our problems and lived our lives on our own strength. It allows others, our lack of desire to share with them what's true about ourselves. It allows others to believe that we've overcome our problems and lived our lives on our own strength. Apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. Why do you tell people? It gives you an opportunity to tell them where you get your strength from, where you get your hope from. In conclusion, I want to say this. Number one, we should all spend time this morning throughout the week, really every day of our lives, reminding ourselves. It'd be a great spiritual exercise in our own devotional life, wouldn't it? To remind ourselves of what he's done for us. Are you feeling angry? Are you feeling bitter? Are you feeling distant from Jesus? Have you ever thought about just sitting down, taking out a piece of paper, and writing out all the things Jesus has done for you? You should do it. It'll give you a softer heart. It'll make you a kinder person. It'll make you a person who's more warm. The last story I want to share with you is this, in closing. There is a kid who did not grow up going to church, who very much did not know who Jesus was. And this kid's young life leader was a kid named Will, a college student. Will was actually a kid that I led to Jesus through my ministry. He was actually a next door neighbor who didn't really grow up experiencing much church, was involved with Young Life. We shared the faith with him and he came in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Will went on to be a Young Life leader in college and he's still on staff in Baltimore. He took this, um, this high school kid to a, a Young Life fall weekend camp and he shared with him the message of Jesus Christ and what Jesus had done for him and how Jesus had had mercy on him. And he prayed the prayer with this young man. The man said, I do, I want a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he prayed the prayer with this young man. After they were done praying, the young man, who's a brand new believer, just had just begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. They, were, they got up, they were walking out of the place where they were sitting, going to the snack bar, gonna go get a soft pretzel or a chocolate shake or something fun. Will said, hey, let me go to the snack bar, we'll buy you something. And the kid stopped and he said, Will, is this important? What you just told me, is that important? What I just did, is that important? He said, yes. So they started walking a few more feet towards the snack bar. The guy stopped him again. He said, Will, is that important? What I just did, is that important? Is the message important? This is a high school kid who doesn't know anything. And Will said, yeah, it's important. They, they walk another 10 feet. The kid stops him, turns him around and says, Will, is what I just did the most important thing you could do? Will said, okay, hey, buddy, calm down. Like, what's wrong with you? I'm just trying to go get a soft pretzel. Hey, what, what's your big deal? He goes, Will, if it's so important, How come no one ever told me until right now? Your neighbors, the people who live with you, who work with you, are waiting for you to come along. Do you understand because of Jesus and you that you're medicine? You're medicine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this church. Thank you for some, so much for this reminder this morning of the very simple... Uh, injunction and exercise to remember uh, what you have done for us and how you've had mercy on us. God, I pray if nothing else this morning, we would leave here excited to be reminded about how you loved us and died for us and how you brought us to be for the first time in our lives in our right mind. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.